Good afternoon. This is Resonance 104.4 FM. My name is Frank Key and this is Hooting Yard on the Air. Um, I haven't been here for a, a few weeks, but now I'm back. And here's a rag bag of stuff um, for the next half hour. Instructive and morally uplifting prose as ever. Is there anything more important in the early days of November than deworming your goat? If you're a pig-fixated person, you may wish to differ, but most, if not all, Hooting Yard listeners will want to ensure that their goats are innocent of worms in this critical month in the Capra Hircus life cycle. Here, then, are some useful tips. Listen to them carefully, making notes on a scrap of paper as appropriate, for you will want to refer to the tips once you have ranged across the fields in your big leaking boots to the goat cubicles. If possible, always weigh your goat before deworming it. Use any old scales you can lay your hands on, but preferably ones in which a goat will squat happily for a minute or two. When you have weighed your goat, you will be able to calculate and inject or drench the correct dosage of the dewormer. If you underdose your goat because of failure to weigh it, or because you fecklessly underestimate just how bulky, or indeed unbulky, it is, this may be a costly mistake. It may lead to your goat developing that most fearsome of conditions, viz. parasite resistance to dewormers. But don't rest on your laurels like a smug goat person because an overdose of certain proprietary dewormers can cause health problems, if not for your goat, then for you and your immediate family and the neighbours up in the big black house on the hill. All sorts of hideous running sores, boils and suppurations can occur if you overdose your goat, although I'm not quite sure how that happens in a strictly scientific sense. Nevertheless, you don't want to upset those eerie, lantern-jawed neighbours of yours after what happened in March up in the hills during a thunderstorm with all that eldritch inhuman howling, do you? Having dewormed your goat... Um, having dewormed your goat... You may want to um, consider that you may need a basin during the, um, during the operation. I've long been promising a definitive series of articles on basins, and I'm well aware that listeners are champing at the bit. Is there anything else other than a bit at which one champs? I wish Dobson had written a pamphlet listing other items suitable for champing at, but alas, he never did, to my knowledge. Even had he done so, it would be out of print, and I'd have the devil of a job tracking it down. By the way, word reaches me that a complete listing of every single Dobson pamphlet ever written has been posted on the internet, but I haven't been able to track that down. Google gives about two and a half million pages for Dobson and nearly 20,000 for Dobson plus pamphlet, and finding time to look at that amount of information dizzies my tiny, curdled brain, I'm afraid. It would help if we knew Dobson's first name, of course, but I'm not sure that he had one. Aloysius Nesting Bird once spent the whole winter trying to find out if Dobson's parents ever called him anything except Dobson. 
He was working from the questionable premise that everyone has a first name, and as a result, his health was ruined. They took him to hospital in a wheelbarrow because he was unable to walk, and the ambulance persons were unable to get a stretcher into the hayloft where the scholar was holed up. He'd taken refuge there, covered in straw, as the neurasthenic fits brought on by overwork became more pronounced. Nesting bird's mental state was always fragile, as were his shin bones. As a youth, he'd been an enthusiastic, if incompetent, player of hockey, ice hockey, water polo and other games involving hefty wooden sticks, capable, when wielded with sufficient force, of smashing his bones to bits, as they did regularly. It is a bitter irony, he wrote, that I acquired a second name, being known as Aloysius Splinterbones, where I was unable to ever find just the one name for Dobson. Of course, Splinterbones was not the only nickname that Nesting Bird picked up in a career that spanned more decades than I can recall with certainty. Whereas the provenance of Splinterbones is easily explained, some of the others are mysterious, while yet others are highly mysterious. Why, for example, did a little gang of infant banditti who roamed the canal towpaths always refer to Nesting Bird as Tab Hunter, when he bore no resemblance to that celebrated actor. We do not know. I haven't forgotten that you're champing at the bit for an essay about basins. It would have been written by now had I not received a letter from a listener asking a deceptively simple question. Dear Mr Key, wrote someone signing himself Krista Burhug. That's B-U-R-H-G. Um... Dear Mr Key, he wrote, when you write your long-awaited and no doubt superb piece about basins, will you be addressing the related issue of sieves? After all, surely a sieve is just a basin with holes in it. As soon as I read this, I rent my garments and let out a shrill cry like the wild boy of Aveyron. My dejection was immense. I picked up a handful of pebbles and hurled them through the open window at the crows perched on the fence. Then I picked up another handful of pebbles, bigger ones, and threw them at the starlings on the lawn. I knew that both the crows and the starlings would take their revenge later by pecking at my upholstery and my towels, but the business with the pebbles relieved the pressure on my brain and lifted my spirits, albeit temporarily. I went and washed my hair with an exciting new shower product, then sat down and fired off a reply to my correspondent. Dear Mr de Burhug, I wrote, You may think you've asked a simple question by raising the issue of sieves as nothing but basins with holes in them, but the simplicity is deceptive. I will now have to rewrite the piece from scratch. So distraught was I on reading your letter that I rent my garments, let out a shrill cry, threw pebbles at crows and starlings and washed my hair, which is still dripping wet. My brain is now calm enough for me to put pencil to paper. I am going to tear up everything I have written about basins and begin again. I signed the letter with wild stabbing thrusts of the pencil, burst into tears and became all floppy, like a rag doll neglected and abandoned by the side of a hateful pond.
I was reading some um, moral fables the other day, you know, like Aesop's fables. So I thought I'd write one myself. This is um, the story of the lame dog, the caged bird, the drowned cat, the gold watch, the whiskey boy, and the insane boy. Once upon a time, there was an insane boy who could only be becalmed by listening to prog rock. On Monday, a Barclay James Harvest album was played to him. On Tuesday, there was a power cut, and in his mania, the insane boy went out and attacked a lame dog. The dog's name was Hoo-Boo-Goo. It was a winter ghost dog. On Wednesday, electricity was restored, and the insane boy listened over and over again to Pantagruel's Nativity by Gentle Giant. On Thursday, the insane boy absconded from his deep, dark, dank cellar and headed for the hills. With one swift, inhuman movement, he plucked a starling from the sky and put it in a birdcage. On Friday, his keepers forced the insane boy to listen to Atomic Rooster at an almost imperceptible volume. On Saturday, the insane boy took advantage of a moment's inattention on the part of his guards to drown a cat in a puddle. The cat was called Fad Fod Flap and it was 14 years old. On Sunday, Carl Palmer of Emerson Lake and Palmer visited the insane boy and played a drum solo that lasted all day. On Monday, the insane boy smashed a gold watch into a thousand bits with his terrifyingly pale fists. On Tuesday, the insane boy had an iPod with only one track clamped to his head. The song was A Plague of Lighthouse Keepers by Vandegraaff Generator. On Wednesday, the insane boy managed to smuggle a bottle of spirits into his filthy cell. The warders wrote a report for Captain Jarvis in which they called the insane boy the Whiskey Boy, inaccurately as the bottle contained terps. On Thursday, the insane boy begged to hear Tales of Topographic Oceans by Yes. On Friday the insane boy was pronounced incurable. That story was in words of more than one syllable. It has no moral. And from The Insane Boy to The Insane Root. Um, the Insane Root is a novel by Mrs. Campbell Pride. Um, and here is a quotation from that novel. 
There lay exposed a strange little brown image, a root of the potato species distorted into human shape, with grotesquely human features, nose, lips, the indication of eyes, and hairy filaments falling from the sides of the head and forming a kind of beard upon the shriveled jaw and chin. The creature appeared a distinct miniature effigy of a man. The shape of the limbs was clearly traceable, and two little brown tentacles of arms with rudimentary hands lay, one by the side and the other half over the breast. Bits of the earth from which it had been torn still clung in the indentations of the shape, and on the top of the head, mingling with the tufts of hair, were the shriveled remains of a stalk which had been removed or had mouldered away. Marillier examined the thing with intense curiosity, at the same time revolted by its quasi-human appearance. I think that the insane root which Mrs. Campbell Pride refers to in that quotation is likely to be a mandrake. The bifurcated root of the plant resembles a human figure, or so people have thought throughout the ages. There is a legend that when the mandrake person is pulled from the ground, it shrieks in pain, and this cry is able to madden, deafen, or even kill an unprotected human being. One way of pulling a mandrake out of the ground safely is given as follows. A furrow must be dug around the root until its lower part is exposed, then a dog is tied to it, after which the person tying the dog must get away. The dog then endeavours to follow him, and so easily pulls up the root, but dies suddenly instead of his master. After this, the root can be handled without fear. Being a miniature person, the mandrake root is thus a type of homunculus. The first homunculus was made by that old rascal Paracelsus out of a bag of bones, sperm, skin fragments and animal hair, these ingredients laid in the ground surrounded by horse manure for 40 days, at which point the embryo formed. It seems likely that Paracelsus was making this up, as I tried it. I was looking forward to having a little homunculus running about the place, and was even thinking up a suitable name for it, but when I dug up the patch of manure, there was no sign of any such being. The mandrake itself features in another homunculus recipe. The root has to be picked before dawn on a Friday morning by a black dog, then washed and fed with milk, honey and blood. I was going to try this approach too, but I was unable to find a suitable dog. A particularly thrilling method of creating a homunculus was given by Dr David Christianus of Geisen in the 18th century. He suggested taking an egg laid by a black hen, poking a tiny hole through the shell, replacing a bean-sized portion of the white with human sperm, sealing the opening with virgin parchment, and burying the egg in dung on the first day of the March lunar cycle. Do this, he confidently announced, and after 30 days a miniature humanoid would emerge, which would help and protect its creator in return for a steady diet of lavender seeds and earthworms. Well, I'm going to have a bash at this method next March, and I'll let listeners know how I get on.
Here's a story for children. This is called An Outing. Listen, tiny ones. If you're good, I will take you on an outing. I will take you to the old balsa wood factory on the edge of the big blue lake. Every Thursday afternoon at two o'clock, there is a tour of the factory, especially for tots. The hooters sound and everyone lines up at a kiosk in the car park and Mr Verdigris appears in his towering hat with bells on his sleeves and ribbons and bunting and hamsters nestling in his pockets and he takes the lucky people, the one with tickets, on a tour of the factory. I was sent some tickets in the post yesterday as a special treat. I know that Tim, the radio meteorologist, says that Thursday will be a day of driving rain and howling gales, and I know that it will be the fourth day of our fast and we will be famished, but I'm determined that we go. The alternative is that we spend yet another afternoon trying to tether the wild goats, and I'm not sure I can take much more of that, so the balsa wood factory it will be. First there was the grass verge of the car park, and then a lawn, some derelict outbuildings, including a shed wherein rotted the remains of the hanged janitor, and then the factory itself, its cavernous interior lit by thousands upon thousands of gas jets, and eerily silent save for the occasional buzzing of a saw or the distant, insistent pounding of a pulper from the annex over beyond the railway tracks, a sound borne in on the wind. After that, up the metal stairway to the offices, always deserted on Thursday afternoons, even tiny shoes making the floorboards creak, and shelves upon shelves stacked with higgledy-piggledy piles of files and papers and dockets, and Mr Verdigris took the hamsters from his pockets and placed them on a bed of straw next to an important-looking desk, its surface polished to such a gleam as left the children dumbfounded and resting on it nothing but a fat new fountain pen and the biggest bottle of ink you could imagine, and the pen had never been used and the bottle never opened, for the lids of both were jammed by dint of mischievous sprites that scampered in the rafters overhead. And it was up to the rafters now, up to the attic, past boxes and crates filled with rusty and inexplicable machines, redundant cash registers and forgotten magnetic recording devices, through a narrow corridor littered with broken brooms and host to a mysterious gurgling noise, until we reached the chamber at the end and our tour guide, in his towering hat, kicked open the door so violently and we entered a room lit in a blue blue glow, like heaven, and there in the corner, sprawled on a divan, we saw Pinocchio, dexterously plucking flies out of the blue air with his tiny fingers, and biting the tiny head off each tiny fly with his tiny wooden teeth.
So, you want to become a Haru Specs. If you're interested in becoming a Haru Specs, the first thing to do is choose a sacrificial vi victim and slaughter it. Or, if you're squeamish, have it slaughtered for you. It might be a duck, or a hen, or a hare. And if you're having delusions of grandeur, you can always use a larger animal, like a performing seal or a giraffe. Haruspices tend not to engage in human sacrifice, and it's well not to give the police any pretext to investigate your doings. In current law, there is no plea of haruspexdom to defend you against a murder rap. Remember that, it's important. Now, once the victim has been slain, it's your job to interpret the entrails. You will be following in a long tradition. Back in ancient Etruscan times, the earliest haruspices learned their art from Tages, a being who suddenly sprang from the ground near Tarquini. Tages always claimed to be the grandson of Jupiter, and as no one ever challenged him on this, it must have been so. Actually, I think he's probably pronounced Tages rather than Tages. I know what you're going to ask. Victim killed, check. Splattered with gore, check. Disposition of entrails visible, check. But how to interpret them? Well, that's where your local library comes in. Early haruspices, sometimes known as extispices, wrote a series of instructional manuals called Libri Haruspicini Fulgulares and Tonitruales, and copies should be available if you ask the librarian in a very quiet voice, making sure you maintain eye contact. Bear in mind that municipal librarians become rightly suspicious of blood-splattered and shifty-eyed borrowers, and if that means fixing them with a stare of unhinged mad capery, so be it. These ancient tomes are not forbidden, as far as I know, and you have every right to borrow them, unless you owe outstanding fines. I should have told you to get copies of the Haruspicina manuals before slaughtering your eel or bat or whatever creature you selected. Sorry. Anyway, by consulting the books you will be well placed to interpret from the fresh entrails the will of the gods. And that's all there is to it. If you're a vegetarian or a vegan, you can still qualify as a Haru Specs by eschewing entrails and instead interpreting portenta, that is, lightning, earthquakes and all extraordinary phenomena in nature. Unlike those snotty-nosed augurs with their professional association, Haru Specs tend to be self-employed. You can drum up business by advertising in the yellow pages or placing a notice in your newsagents or post office window. Good luck. And with a bit of luck, you'll be able to uh, join Rosemary F. of Swanage, who wrote in to say, I followed the So You Want to Become a Haru Specs course, and I now employ eight people and take three Etruscan holidays every year.
regular listeners will know that I very rarely read poetry on uh, on Hooting Yard on the air, but every now and then I do. And uh, this is an old favourite, very old actually. I can't remember how old this, this is. Um, but it's called Docking Hack. And it's, uh, I think you need to listen very carefully because there is a, a, a deep profundity to this, which... Um, so maybe you want to kind of copy it down in shorthand while I read it. Or you can look it up on the Hooting Yard website. Just put Hooting Yard into Google and um, off you go. Hats are off in docking. Caps are being doffed. The council's got a town plan. The maths are on a chart. Pips have been spat out and drudgery is bye-bye. Chocolate puddings seem to be in everybody's pantry. And here comes Traitor Bill. He caught a shark in waters. His sou'wester's been askew since 1954-ish. Bubbles surge from froth. The chemist shop is shut. There's pills and pills and pills that no docking man could swallow. Suffering aborted, the council in a caucus. The shaven heads of heads of state are battering the doors down. The city gates, the turrets, the alleys, roads and mews. Docking has its ears all go for red alert decisions. Language has been no-noed, the bamboo men are wailing, the breakage rate is scheduled, the system has been broken. Crayons pink and stacked, the burnt sienna packaged, vandals clash at nightfall, but docking has its crackers. Plastic wrapped in plastic, the docking coffers emptied, idiot brawl saloon bar, a gorgeous snag-tooth babble. Prepared to dance a hoocha, not a tear or boohoo. Thousands of museums stacked with golden maps. Misshapen trunk road closures, big stone reconstructions. Dockings cottoned on. It's a town about a tower. The frame is out of kilter, the coffins filling coffins. Oh, but I want to go back to that docking, docking hack. Finally, the fire, I'll start again. Finally, this week, it's come to my attention that, that not a single one of the novels by Dorothy Sleet, featuring her fictional detective Rex Shroud, Orrery Sleuth, is still in print. This is all the more puzzling when one learns that the Broadway show based on the books is breaking box office records. The plot of Orrery Sleuth, the musical cobbles together incidents from the first three novels with certain episodes from Dorothy Sleet's life. Like Agatha Christie, she once disappeared for a few weeks and was found in a seaside boarding house. Like Adolf Hitler, she took seven sugars in her tea. Like the wild boy of Aveyron, she shrieked when her potatoes were taken away. Like James Joyce, she hid underneath tables during thunderstorms. Like William Ewart Gladstone, she adduced from the works of Homer that all ancient Greeks were colourblind. Like Pope Pius XII, she gave lectures on gas central heating. Like Hedy Lamarr, she made a decisive scientific contribution that helped to win the Second World War. And like Alfred Hitchcock, she was frightened of eggs. 
It is this last point that explains perhaps the scene in Act 2 of the musical where Rex Shroud, the orrery sleuth, finds himself trapped in a little shed, completely surrounded by hens. The menacing atmosphere is heightened by the music, a slow, brooding theme on woodwinds, accompanied by the chorus delivering a dirge about feathers. Brilliantly, the scene segues into a tap-dancing extravaganza and the show's hit number, I Am An Orrery Sleuth, Encircled by Hens, which is, of course, a nod to Chapter 16 of Antarctic Death Paste, the second novel in the series. Tickets for the show are hard to get and change hands for ridiculous prices on the Orrery Sleuth Bay website. Animal rights activists should note that none of the hens which appear in the musical is a real bird. Some of them are electronic robots, some are made of plasticine, and the ones nearest the front of the stage are constructs of sponge and wire and string. And that's the end of Hooting Yard on the Air for this week. Um, I do hope you've enjoyed it, and I'll be back with even more um, stuff like this next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>